people are rolling in here. So as we're rolling in here, let's check out the chat real quick. We've got Eric PPG Lear, uh, Bill H, uh, Tommy Sutherland, Mark George in the house, Walter from Australia. Man, what's up from tomorrow upside down? We also got uh, Mark George. Oh, oh, you've been talking for a minute. Okay, that's good. Got a lot of people in here. Will Fly. Um, I'm in there too. Uh, PPG, the other Nick, what's up? Uh, we got uh, a lot of people rolling in. Tommy Sutherland, welcome. Uh, this is awesome. I I'm really glad that y'all made it here. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Sean Simons, also known as... What else am I known as? Oh, PPG Grandpa. Yeah, that's it. It's right down here. Uh, we do this Clear Prop TV Paramotor Podcast every Monday night. You can listen to us here and see us at clearproptv.com, or you can listen to us at paratalk.org. This is going to be an amazing show, and as always, let's introduce the panel before we get to the get to the guest. We got paramomusa.com. She's our Linda Anderson. She's our cheerleader. She's the ones that book everybody. There you are. What's up? Hi, everybody. Welcome. It's Monday night. You know where to be on Monday night, like right here, nowhere else, right here with us. Thank you so much for joining my chatters. I love you all. Much love. And uh, I'm just happy to be here. You know me on, on uh, Monday night. My chair's rocking and rolling and I am ready to go. <laughs> if you guys want to be on our show, just get up with Linda Anderson. Just go to ParamountUSA.com. That does forward over to her Facebook page to say, hey, I want to be on PPG Grandpa's Paramotor Podcast, and she will hook you up on ClearProp TV Paramotor Podcast every single Monday night. We also got Eric Lear in the house. What's up, Eric Lear, buddy old pal? Hey, guys. Happy Monday. Glad everybody in the chat and listening on the uh, podcast can be here. Awesome. Now, you also run a, uh, a podcast, too, on Tuesday nights, right? Yep, PPG Tuesday Night Hangout with uh, Will, Brian, uh, Mark, uh, Shane, and myself. And how do we get there and uh, check out those shenanigans that you do every Tuesday night? You can find us at ppglearlear.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Linda. And, um, oh, do we miss We miss somebody. We're our guest disappeared. Hopefully he comes back uh, before we finish uh, saying hello to everybody. And we also got Will Fly from willflyppg.com. What's up, bud? Hey, I hope we didn't scare the guest off. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> hope not, too. <laughs> yes, yeah, good to be here. I can't fly, but uh, I'm going to do the next best thing, and that's talk about flying. Well, flying is always good. Have you put out a new video since last week? I have not. Nope. Oh. But if we do want to go check out your videos, how do we do that? You can find me at uh, YouTube under Will Fly or just go to willflyppg.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Will, for being on the show, too. But this is not about us. This is not about the chatters. This is about one guy here that came here and said, I will be on ClearProp TV, Paramotor Podcast, on Monday night. And we got Todd Felstead. What's up, buddy? Good to see you. It is good to be here. Thanks for the invite. Lindy searched me out on social media. Can you hear me? Because I had my thing dumped. My, uh, I had to reboot my system. Well, that's no my, problem. You're getting my it, you audio. Know, yeah. Push comes to shove. You can always use, use your cell phone. That is a possibility. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, welcome very uh, welcome to the show, Todd. We definitely appreciate you being here. Uh, for those of you that do not know Todd, if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into paramotors. Well, I, um, 
I spent a career in aviation and I had some heart issues and I needed heart surgery and it ended my career. And I thought I could leave flying in the dustbin of my memories and I couldn't do it. <clears throat> so a buddy of mine had sent me some uh, emails about um, powered parachutes and I, you know, YouTube in their infinite wisdom, their algorithms don't know the difference between powered parachutes and powered paragliders. So it started feeding me young Tucker got videos and Tucker had about 2000 subscribers at the time. And I, I said, Hey, those things fly like, like a world war II fighter. I want to fly one. So I thought you could just click and point and order one. And I learned that, you know, most people expected you to have training and they, the, the, people with consciences weren't going to sell you gear. I found a guy that would sell me gear without training. And um, I documented that experience and I'm not, I, I wouldn't advocate that for anybody, but it's the path that I chose. And I think it gave me a little bit of notoriety, especially given my historical background. Um, but uh, that, you know, that's behind us now. The, the sport has moved so far from where we were. There were some really, really shady characters selling training back then. Uh, if you even dared call it that, um, I advocated that we could do better as an industry. We could, we could improve our safety numbers. We could stop talking about gear. We could stop talking about, um, uh, skills and instead talk about the decision process. And that would equate to more safety. And I think that we've made some real inroads. I think there's a, a real consistent product out there now, if you're looking to buy training, I'd like to say that I think that I had some influence there. Um, maybe that would have happened without me um, pricking the conscience of some of the people that were selling training. But of the, of the four or five people that I vetted for potential training and said no to in that time frame, uh, none of them are still in business. None of them. So um, that's my story. You know, and I, I fly recreationally. I like to fly with guys that um, I had a heavy influence on. on um, you know, their development as pilots, we have a pretty big group in my former hometown of Lexington, South Carolina. We get together up there and fly a lot, um, lots of big open ag areas. And I spend a lot of time in Florida now as a permanent resident of Florida. I still go back to South Carolina a lot, but, um, you know, here there's, there's just so many people and so many venues to fly, so many beaches, so many um, avenues. And it's really a great environment given that we have such good weather of predominant portion of the year so well i i wish that i was down in florida and as soon as i'm able to retire in florida i'll be down there with you for sure um this 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 arkansas is warm but we got snow and i'm cold and i don't like that stuff at all um looks like we got jp tool that joined us also welcome jp glad you made it buddy um now todd before the uh, show we talked about um you know what we wanted to talk about tonight and he said the philosophy the philosophy of paramour oh uh, no it's a life philosophy it's bigger life than the life philosophy of paramours hey you know what it's all about <laughs> paramours all right i mean that's what it's all about it is and, and you, you know, um, like I told you in the pre-show, if anybody's tuning in to see the world's greatest paramotor pilot, I'm not the guy. Um, I fly like, I tell people I fly like your grandmother. Um, yeah, I maneuver. And yes, I've stalled a paramotor and I've, I've done some things like that. But, um, you know, I know what I want out of this. And that is uh, safety number one at, at the high, high end of the list. So, um, 
if you're tuning in tonight, stick around. We will get to paramotoring. We will get to how this, my, what I call my philosophy, how it was developed. Um, so, and, and before you start the philosophy, I got a question for you. If we have uh, questions in the chat, can we go ahead and ask you, or do you want yeah, them absolutely. to? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I'm familiar with your show format, and and uh, you guys have really encouraged a lot of people to participate, and it's kind of a an open exchange. Let's keep it that way. What do you think? Awesome. Will, um, you posted a question to ask? Yeah, uh, Bill H, uh, question for the guests. How can someone like me get some free flying in before kicking the bucket? What does he mean by free flying? Is he talking about jumping off a mountain without a paramotor? Yeah, yeah, yeah not, uh, not free cost. Um, so I always razz those guys, you know, whenever I see their ads for uh, free flight, free flight training. I always say, well, if it's free, <laughs> how good can it be? Um, no, plan a destination, Bill H. I mean, shoot, there's, there's a couple, you know, not here in Florida so many because most of them are tow operators. Um, but I really, I, I can't say enough about Dave Hanning and his school up there in Tennessee. We spent a week there last summer. Um, you know, search him out. I think his, uh, tree, treetop flyers is the, uh, adjacent organization but his i i don't really remember what dave's but if you search dave hanning um you can get up there and take a course you can even get your p2 with him if you want um you know certainly a trip out west to california that that would be a way to do it uh it, it's a lot of fun you know if you if you've only flown motors and you want to do that it's absolutely a must do absolutely so. okay um eric you, you you're on mute buddy you're, yeah, you're still on me. Okay, there this is from Paramotor Steve. How has your recovery gone so far? Well, not as well as I had hoped. And, you know, part of our discussion tonight is going to be about the fact that I built a trike uh, because that turned out to be a lot longer, lengthier, and more physically limiting than I ever imagined it would be. Um, I'll tell you, getting old is not for sissies. The... the I've had a couple major surgeries and a couple minor surgeries, and this one took me the better part of two months to be able to, to function without pain. Um, so I use that time wisely. I built a trike, and Sean wants to talk about my trike, but I want to talk about what I was thinking about as I was building the trike. The build of the trike is pretty simple. Um, the, the things that I, I, I passioned about in that trike build are pretty important, and that's what I want to convey tonight. Um, so let me tell you a story. Um, if, if this doesn't date me, uh, as the, probably the oldest guy here, it, it was 1979. Um, I'm a freshman in high school and I'm walking home from school. And what I typically would do is I'd come, this was in the Chicago suburban area. I'd come home and I'd turn on the TV and, um, we had three channels, you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And then there was like PBS and WGN and no, no cable in the house yet. And all three of the networks were covering this story. And the story was about an engine falling off of an airliner. It was an American Airlines. I have the flight number here. It was American Airlines 191, if you want to look it up. And I was riveted. I, I became a news junkie that day. Um, and... Ultimately, what happened in that, it was a DC-10, 
which um, in, in just a few short years, I was working for an airline that flew the DC-10. Um, in an engine change, a routine swapping one engine for another, they had used a forklift and they damaged the, the mount housing for where that engine plugged into the pylon and got bolted to the bottom side of the wing. And they didn't catch it. And by not catching it, when it was taken off under full power with a full load of people and full fuel off of the Chicago Harris field that sheared off the engine and the engine continued to run and flew up and around the wing and it crashed and it killed all those people that were on board. And the story was horrific. It had a tremendous impact on the direction of, of my life in so far as aviation. Um, that was, I couldn't see the smoke from our house, but it was literally 30 miles from where we lived where that accident had happened. And, um, you know, we, I watched it with, with, you know, riveted to the TV for a day or so while all of that was going on. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, I was headed off to college and had an interest in flying and aviation all along and, and eventually started doing that in college and uh, had another incident happen. My, I think it was my sophomore year in college, uh, Air Illinois crashed in Southern Illinois. I went to Southern Illinois University. And the crash itself wasn't all that spectacular. It involved some failures of communication. Um, but what was interesting to me about it was the way the NTSB handled it and how seriously the FAA took it. And uh, that was formative. Um, that, that was definitely something that, that, that made me consider any and everything that I did in aviation. So I got hired at the airline. You know, I learned how to fly in college and we had a pretty good program of getting guys enough time to be fairly qualified by the time they got out of school. And I, I had 13 job offers by the time I was out of college, kind of like kids right now that are, that are involved in aviation. There's such a shortage of pilots. Um, they're they're going to get employment almost immediately. So I was flying at the airline and I used to make a, a an annual pilgrimage up to Oshkosh to go to the air show. And I know a lot of paramotor guys have started to do that now too. And all of a sudden I see this airplane come flying by and it was totally different than anything that I'd seen. It was a general aviation airplane and they called it a glass air. Well, they were, they're hyping this thing as a kit plane, you know, and kit, kit planes were kind of getting started and home built airplanes were kind of getting started. This was a big, a big, part of why the EAA was in existence. And all of a sudden this, this glasser comes by at twice the speed of the production airplanes. And they, they get talking about how, how lightweight this thing was and how strong it was and, and uh, how fast it was on, on uh, you know, lower fuel consumption than production airplanes. And I went back to work and I was just enamored with it. I wanted to build one. And I had decided that when the time and money and space were available, I was going to build a glasser. So the, the captain that, uh, that I'm flying with that month, his name was Carl. His name is Carl Pascarell. If you Google his name, um, Carl has handed, had his hands in everything to do with aviation. In fact, he just recently, I mean, this is, this is almost 35 years after I met Carl. He just served as a, um, uh, technical advisor on the new series that Disney's doing to replace the original right stuff movie about the space agency or about the, about this race to the moon. 
So Carl and I are flying together and Carl was a renowned home-built aircraft builder. He had nine airplanes in his house and in his garage and in his hangar in various stages of tweaking. So I said, Carl, what, tell me what you know about this glass area. And, and Carl at the time was working as the chief test pilot for a program that was uh, designed by a, a guy named Ed Swearinger in the Swearinger SF-260. And it was an amazing airplane in its own right. And Carl impressed this on me. He said, look, if you take a piece of aluminum and you take a hundred pieces of aluminum and you deform them until they ultimately, they bend and they ultimately fail, you're gonna get a very predictable weight and stress input that's going to cause these parts to fail, right? And he said, the problem with these fiberglass and these composite airplane components is that you can put 10 pounds on one of them and it'll fail. And another one will end up having a thousand pounds on it. And there's no, there's no concise point of predictability for the longevity of some of these fiberglass components and some of these carbon fibers. Now, you know, this is, this is the late nineties. So carbon fiber components were only starting to see their, their introduction into things like golf clubs and uh, racquetball rackets at the time. And they, they weren't considered aviation grade materials. So all of a sudden Airbus introduces their A300. And this is a commercial airplane that's, uh, you know, approximately 300 passengers, depending on how you configured it as an airline. And they have carbon fiber on the thing. And guess who one of their launch American customers is American Airlines. And American had its longstanding history of their airplanes were polished aluminum. And at the end of the, each night, their airplanes would go into the hangar and guys would buff on them with orbital buffers and shine those things back up and roll them out onto the flight line. They were always spotless. And now all of a sudden they had this A300 with this crappy looking gray composite painted tail that didn't match the rest of the airplane. And now I'm scratching my head going, but Carl, you told me that this wasn't a good choice, but the manufacturers figured it out. They came up with a lot better processes to get. So one of the keys to this fiberglass thing now is, is this, this ratio of resin to fibers and they, they, they cracked the science to it. And next thing you know, all kinds of airplanes are being made out of fiberglass components. Um, but subsequent visits to Oshkosh, there was an airplane that was really wildly pop popular, the, the Vans series, the RV4, the RV6, the RV8, those things, have, have, they're just legendary. There's six, seven, 8,000 of those things out there flying. They had a, a steel tube that ran around the inside of the canopy and it blocked your vision, especially if you were a tall guy. It was like right at eye level. So I met this dentist and he had one that he had, his was, you know, 43 knots faster than the next fastest RV out there. He was really a detail oriented guy, had a long history of private air racing. And he had removed that, that tube and the tube was rollover protection. If that airplane flipped over, it prevented the pilot's neck from getting broke. And I, I asked him, I'm like, dude, uh, where's the crush tube? How did you do this? He said, oh, I laid up this carbon fiber spar that goes in there and it's only an eighth of an inch thick and it's stronger than that one and a half inch steel tube that was blocking my vision. 
I was like, so what does it weigh? Oh, he says it's, it's one-fifth the weight of the steel. I'm like, ah, how about that? That's, that's pretty cool stuff. So, you know, you started seeing carbon fiber being introduced into airplanes like the Beechcraft Starship. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That was a, a civilian answer to the business jet market, a turboprop, an all-carbon composite and fiberglass airframe. And the FAA came out and said, well, okay, you can build this and we'll certify it. You, you, can, you can sell them and you can sell rides on them. But we're going to limit the airframe to number of cycles because one of the problems with, with some of these composite materials like the Scout paramotor is they're not ductile. They don't flex. And they, they tend to shatter if they have an impact. And the predictability of their failure, you know, with aluminum, you can bend it and say, we know the last 10 of these that we bent, when we bent it the 1,468th time, it snapped. And you can't do that with carbon fiber. You can't do that with fiberglass. It, the, the predictability spectrum is out the window. So they limited the cycle, the life cycle of that airplane. Well, consequently, it was a horrible economic failure for, for Beechcraft. They put a lot of money into the research and development of that airplane. I think they built 11 or 12 of them. And most of them had, they reached that life cycle limit and they pulled them all back and shredded them. And, in that same time frame, you know, the airliner market continued continued to adopt and adapt to these lighter weight materials. So, um, when we I got, first started, we got a oh, lot of we got a lot of um, questions that are popping up in the right, chat. Well, let's, uh, let's take a question or two, and then then we'll get to how this relates to paramotors and what I built. Go ahead. Awesome, Will and Eric. Yes. Oh, go ahead, Will. Well, uh, Brian Waller, shout out. He says that uh, he really enjoyed camping with you in the Sunnyland Blind. Yeah, cool. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. And uh, so Dave McClay, let's see. Where is your favorite place to fly? Oh, shoot. Hands down the Black Hills in South Dakota. That's just a, that's just a clean kill right there. On one flight out there with Ryan Jones, who I'd never met before. He invited me to stay and camp at his house. We went out in one flight. We saw black bears, brown bears, elk, white-tailed deer, and buffalo on one flight. <laughs> nice. And uh, good, you know, reasonable elevation. Unlike some of the places out west where you're you're taking off at you know six, seven, eight thousand feet. I think Black Hills is what you know, like forty-two hundred feet or something like that. So you're not running halfway across Kansas to get airborne. <laughs> Nice. Like the craziest thing I think I've ever seen or the most exotic is a wild turkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. I saw a, a skunk um, shoot his tail up when I was foot dragging. Um, but I, I think Todd got me on, on, on cool stuff so far. No doubt. Well, you know, we, we kind of have purposed ourselves. My wife and I have purposed ourselves to try to spend uh, um, oh, three or four months consecutively um, touring around in the motorhome and, and I make it my business to, to go to places where I can fly. So it, it's gotten me the opportunity to fly in a lot of different places. And, and, uh, if, if you get the opportunity to do something like that, don't miss it because some of the things that I've got, you know, my other favorite place is, uh, uh, everybody wants to talk about the glamorous sand dunes, but I found a sand dunes in central Idaho this summer 
we camped right in this oasis looking like campground. And I literally could walk 10 feet from the camper and take off from the sand and flying there was, was really, really, really a fun thing to do. Um, it, it's a big Mecca for, um, Salt Lake city area, um, four wheeler, uh, type crowd. They, they come out there for the weekend. So. Nice. Let's get another question. This is from Mad Sloper. Um, do you know anything about the proposed Falcrum power pod? I do. In fact, um, we we have we have spent some time. I was talking about that with with one of my wheeled pilot buddies here uh, in Florida today. Um, yeah. I, I so if if you're not watching Peter Shripple you're missing the direction that paramotoring is going. You guys know who he is? I do not. Hey, JP knows who he is. Who is he, JP? Oh, he's got no audio. So he's the dude. He's, he's a big, big RC guy. He's the big like, RC guy. He's the he, dude. He builds everything from scratch. I've been watching Peter for years. Like he, he has some amazing projects. Uh, Sorry, um, Todd. I'm excited about it. You know, oh, I, and you should. Like, be. He's he's making some headway. It's, I, uh, I, I dig watching to him watch too. Yep. So he's the guy that loaned Tucker the 50 ducted paramotor fan matrix of those little electric motors, and they flew it around and they barely got airborne. If you haven't seen that video, that's a good place to start. But he's now figured out that bigger ducted fans make more thrust and paying more attention to the detail of the construction of the fan development is going to make this thing happen. I think I have always said I will be the absolute last person to convert to an electric paramotor, but it will eventually happen. So, and, and Peter's, Peter's on the leading edge. So if, if you're not familiar with Peter's stuff, he's like myself, he's not much of a pilot, but, his ideas that come out of his head are are amazing, and the skill to be able to make some of these things uh, are are incredible too. Absolutely, absolutely. So so let's talk about another turning point. Okay. So I was flying the seven twenty seven, uh, an airplane that was designed in the fifties, built in the sixties and the seventies, and I'm just putting in my time at the airline, you know, and you know, fly my schedule, and. I get to lay over somewhere and I turn on the TV in the hotel room and there's this horrific footage of Al Haynes's crash. Um, it was uh, United Airlines and they crashed in a field or they crashed on the airport at Sioux City, Iowa. And what happened in that thing was the fan blades that all plugged into the wheel around the engine that engine had a casting flaw in it or a forging flaw. It had some debris in the metal that caused the, the, the weight of those fan blades spinning around to pull that thing apart. And it sheared all of the control lines for the flight controls. And they basically, the engine itself stopped running. The two wing engines kept running and they were able to fly the airplane back to the field and crash land it. And half the people lived. And it was amazing that anybody lived with an, an airplane that was virtually uncontrollable. So that marked the validation in my life that these things are important. Uh, the engineering side of these things, material selection, the, the process. So 
you know, I flew another airplane in the meantime, but I ultimately went to the, to the triple seven for a significant portion of my career. And that airplane was the first airplane that was, that was CAD designed. So if you have any interest in building anything for paramotors, you know, a, a decade ago, it would have cost you $10,000 for an OEM version of AutoCAD. And now you can use Fusion 360 as a hobbyist. So if you have any desire to do this, the tools that were used by big production companies like Boeing are now in your hands. And that's where guys like Peter are making a difference in this because one of my friends in South Carolina, his name is Philip. Um, he doesn't do social media. Um, uh, he is classically trained as a, um, a machinist. So he went to a trade school for um, state-of-the-art machinists. And, and Philip introduced me to Fusion 360. And we collaborate all the time using Fusion 360. So I can draw something up. I can email Philip and say, hey, Philip, take a look at this drawing. I can't solve whatever it is. And he can open it on his end and he can work on it and he can solve it. It's kind of like open source engineering. And that's where the future of paramotoring is going. So when you put a guy like Peter out there and you give him the tools like Fusion 360, um, the sky's the limit, literally, because you've got this brain trust. It's, not, it's no longer just one guy building a paramotor or building a paramotor trike or coming up with the next best product in his garage. It can be, it can be a, a community-sourced brain trust project and that's that's where we're going with this thing so i decided after having my most recent surgery that was sidelined me that i needed wheels and sean wants to talk about my trike so what was the i don't know if you're familiar with some of the trike product lines but the one that i paid the most attention to is fly products um, mostly because I, I really like the folks at One Up Adventures, and I like Travis a lot, and that's their product line. And I spent a lot of time researching their very deep product line. So they, they have a very lightweight trike that's probably appropriate for somebody that's been flying for a long time, that's not going to make hard landings, not going to sideload their landings, all the way up to their massive two-passenger dedicated tandem trike that uses a monstrous engine. So I kind of had to decide what, what was it that I was going to build? Well, I, I built one, I'm working on number two and number three is in my head and on the drawing board. So, so I want one of each. Now, now you bolt those onto your foot flying, your foot launch um, paramotor, right? Is that, so is that called a, um, a, a, a trike cart? Or how, how do you actually call that that thing that you bolt on to a foot launcher? Is there so, a certain name for it or what? I, I don't know. that. See, this this is all new territory to me. I, I'm a dedicated foot launch guy. Um, this is a temporary thing for me, but I got a taste of it while I was doing this. I, I got like, I don't know, 12 flights on the trike that I built. And I'm, I was able to foot launch. Last week we had about 12 knot winds, so I was able to get out and foot launch. Um, but it's kind of opened my eyes to there, there's a, a lot of unplowed ground, if you dare say that, to building better trikes. So the first iteration of one and two, I have used my foot launch units and bolted them to 
the vehicle. And that's if, similar to like the retracted trike. The retracted trike is a good example. I'll tell you, you know, as, as unbiased as I can be. Now, now I have a PAP trike or I have a PAP um, paramotor. And I wouldn't say that I'm particularly partial to PAP's products, but they, the trike that they make, I, I, I think they call it the PAP rolling trike. It's hands down the best build for that application. It's titanium. It's super lightweight. It's designed to disassemble and fit into a bag about the size of a bowling bag, a bowling ball bag. Seriously, it's a very small bag. It's probably 24 inches by 20 inches. And the whole thing fits in there. Um, it's quick to assemble. And they've got all the all the angles and all of the engineering on it done pretty well. Um, the problem is the price point. That thing is almost $3,000 MSRP. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to take their design and build a knockoff trike, but I want something very similar. I want to be in a similar weight range. I got looking and uh, the, to source the, the tubing is not even possible in the United States. We, we got we got a lot of questions in the uh, chat. Um, the latest one is uh, Deweese Milstead said, what happened to to you? Uh, what was your accident that you needed to build a trike? Um, and oh, no, no, got... no. There, there was no. The accident is old age and biological deterioration. Um, I, I had a, a hernia that, that uh, I had had one previously on my right side, and this was a left side hernia. I'd nursed the flying season to the absolute end. And when it got to be cold weather season, I scheduled the surgery. It was elective. And the recovery from that surgery was a lot more grueling than I had anticipated. Yeah. That's it. No, no injuries. And I've lived a charmed life with the paramotor. I broke one prop the whole time I've been flying. And it was because I slipped on wet grass. And there's actually uh, a question about a prop. Uh, Will or Eric, I think that was from Mark George someplace. Oh, Mark George. Yeah, I know Mark. Yeah, well, he just wants to know what kind of prop you're you're using now. Um, well, I have one of each. You know, I have a, a, on the PAP trike. I have the Helix 140, and um, it's inlaid with some specialty lighting that Philip and I worked on. And Mark's Mark has bought the design for that. So the 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 inline prop lights that uh, Mark is working, and I I I I, I don't want to tip my hand here, Mark, on what I know about what Philip's doing for you, but. Um, I think the production issues are going to be solved on that here shortly. And Mark's going to have that product out there. That, and that's a Helix, Helix product. Um, I bought a, uh, an EPROP, 140 EPROP two blade that I also put on the PAP machine, especially if there's something that needs to be tweaked on the lighting system and that has to come off of there. Now, trike build number three is going to be a monster trike. It's going to use a, a, a 40 horsepower engine and, and, um, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to see what Philip comes up with. So my buddy Philip is working uh, vigorously at developing some propellers, and he's had some really great um, accomplishments and successes. He has had some spectacular failures. He had a he had a prop prototype come apart on him, and it pretty much destroyed his paramotor. So 
I, I heard monster truck wheels on a paramotor, and my oh. mind just went to that. I'm sorry, it's monster <laughs> trike, monster truck wheels on a on a trike. I, I love it. I, I'm think I'm oh. thinking there. Um, Will and Eric, there's a bunch of um, questions. I don't know if you can go back and and help me um, um, sure. ask Todd. Yeah, the, uh, Brian Waller he wants to know what is the scariest thing that has happened to you offline. Ooh, okay, so we got to qualify that. Um, there's a whole lot more scary things that happen to me career-wise flying than have ever happened to me flying a paramotor. So, so you know, one of the big, big disconnects here is when you fly recreationally, you are responsible for what happens most of the time. It's your decision-making process. When you're flying for a living, you're going no matter what. So you need to mitigate the risks to make that work. Um, and that's where the scary stuff happens because you make compromises and you say, instead of saying, eh, screw it, I'm not going flying today. I'm going to put my paramotor back in the car and I'm going to go bowling or go back and sit at the house or go back and work on parts. Uh, you know, at the professional level, I don't care if you're flight instructing or airline flying or working for a corporation, the boss is in the back of the airplane and he expects to be wherever he bought the ticket or is paying the bill for that flight department to get him on time. And that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. And, and a lot of guys don't see that from the recreational side, you know, that they don't, they don't understand that. Well, how, how could they make that decision? How, how did that guy get into that situation or did that, that crew get into that situation is because the pressures are different. Um, so I, scariest thing that I've had happen on a paramotor. Um, my first couple encounters with turbulence and my very first takeoff when I realized I just took off in something I really don't know how to land yet. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, that, that would be scary. <laughs> but you know, I'd watched a lot of YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, don't discount it. So, so here's, here's my, here's my bent on internet learning. Um, right now, our friend, Peter Shripple, the, the guy with the ducted fan and the one that made all the paramotors for, for, he works for flight test. He does all the RC stuff. His sponsorship is, um, I forget who it is. It, it's, it's something, it's a, it's a learning based, it's a web based, you can learn about anything. And I think if they were to put together an online paramotor course there, it might not be the right answer for everybody, but it would, it would be beneficial for a lot of people. So so sorry to be so disappointing to to Brian there. Um, you know, I I, I can't really, I, and I'm not going to get into my professional flying stuff that was scary because um, that's not the topic of your show, right? Well, I guess whatever you guys want to talk about. I mean, you know, it's flying, it's aviation. I don't really care. Um, I know that we got a lot of questions. Um, I, I am supposed to ask. You resurgence PPG, which rocks, by the way. Uh, Todd wants to know what your fajita recipe is. I'm supposed to ask. You oh, that. is is Todd Scandrit going to be at Wachula in a couple of weeks? If so, I'll share it with him. If he's not going to show up, I'm not telling him. <laughs> All right, here you go. Offer on the table. Yeah, I have uh, two questions here. Um, one is from Deweese, and the other one is from Clark's video. I'll kind of put them together. How long have you been flying paramotors and how old are you? Okay, I'm 57. 
Um, my heart surgery that ended my airline career happened when I was 50. And I took a year off and never looked at any. I sold my personal airplanes. I had a small stable of airplanes. I liquidated those. I kept the hangar, which keeps me, um, it's a residential air park. I don't live there, but I, it gives me a place to fly when I'm in South Carolina. It gives me a place for big paramotor projects and other projects as well. Um, and I started flying uh, six seasons ago this this spring now. So, yeah. And, you know, I don't fly every day. And the, the first year was tough. So I had to work through some mental things about flying again. Um, but, you know, now pretty much if there's a, a string of two or three good days, you can bet I'm flying at least one of them. Um, and I don't really have any limitations on super cold weather, although I tend to be more partial towards the warmer weather. You know, if it's much below 40, I don't derive as much enjoyment out of it as somebody that might just be starting out. Um, I'm not building time for a job or anything like that. But um, if the weather's good and there, or if there's something to see that I haven't seen, let's go get the gear out. Let's go flying. How long do you normally go out for a flight? I mean, I usually top off my my tanks and try to get out there as long as I can, two and a half an hour, two and a half hours for a flight. I, I just love to be out there and and, and enjoy uh, flying. But um, I know that I, I do too. Um, I, I I like to put together like cross country events um, or or you know a, a specific destination. You know, I don't really like the plan of saying I'm just going to take off and see what happens. I like to say, hey, today let's take off. We'll go do some maneuvering and then we'll, you know, we'll fly a five mile box around the airfield or um, let's take off and specifically go down to a motocross track. We'll fly over the motorcycles and come back. You know, I, I kind of like to have a brief mission, especially if I'm flying with more than one guy. Um, I'd like to say most of my flights are an hour, but that's not really true, especially at flying venues where I feel that that FOMA of, uh, wait, is everybody else having coffee? I got to go land and see how they're doing. You know, um, so those those tend to be a little bit shorter flights. But yeah, yeah, fl flyings aren't really for flying. Flyings are to hang out with your friends. I understand. Sure, sure. Amen. Um, any other questions? Or are we ask them all already? Um, how did you design the front of your uh, the front axle of your trike? Bill H is asking. Um, the front forks. You'll never believe who was an influence on that. It was Kurt Fister. And, you know. I saw, I saw your video, so I knew <laughs> what it was. And you're right. You're right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Kurt, Kurt has a certain influence on our sport, whether we, whether we love him or hate him. And um, I'm kind of warmed up to him. I, I, he doesn't attack me. I don't attack him. Um, but his, all of his, his fly pod, which is not to be confused with the fly products line casters. And his argument is that there's just enough pull on the, the mount rails. There's just enough pull if the wings, not perfectly centered to steer that without any pilot input because of the fact it casters like a, like a shopping cart. Um, so it tends to follow the direction that it's pulled. And I wanted that effect. I had a, a child's bicycle and I cut the forks off and uh, machined and welded two tubes that, that actually my buddy Philip did that for me in my shop. He came over one day and we knocked it out and, and I welded it up so that the axle was behind the, the, 
the, the axle of the tire was behind the axle of the steering input so that we built a castering system. Um, but let, let's talk about that. So I'm eyeing this third truck. So you had asked, Sean, um, am I bolting my foot launch rigs to these trikes? And the answer for two of those is yes. So my, my first unit was a Propulse and trike build number two is going to be the Propulse fairly permanently mounted to that trike. Um, you could take it on and off, but it's not going to be as simple as the first trike that I built to accommodate the PAP. So I had to choose an engine for trike build number three. Well, what engine do you choose? So I, I don't know if you guys understand this concept or not, but there is a huge gap because of the engineering, because of the thermodynamics, because of the laws of physics. There's a huge gap between 40 horsepower or more, more reasonably 36, 37 horsepower and 65 horsepower. So what causes that gap. Um, first thing that we have to understand is there are some equations that I don't see all of the paramotor equipment manufacturers adhering to. Number one is thrust to weight ratio. Um, to all reasonable costs, you want as much thrust for as little weight as you can get. Does everybody agree with that? I agree, yeah. Well, you know what happens is the paramotor, the paragliders are so efficient at carrying weight. Sometimes guys lose, they, they lose that vision of that holy, I can't tell you how many people's lives were lost to try to gain one more knot of airspeed, one less knot of drag, one more ounce of thrust for one less ounce of weight. I mean, this is just a never ending battle that drives aviation development. And I think it applies to paramotor construction. So this gap from 40 horsepower, what happens at 40 horsepower is you can't rely on air cooling anymore because you can't dissipate the heat that the engine's making. So you have to go to liquid cooling. Okay. All right. Can you say that one more time then? Where, where, where's that cut off and why? About 36 or 37 horsepower. You can no longer dissipate the heat that will destroy the engine using air cooling. Okay. There's not enough air relative to the mass of that engine to keep it cool. So the, the next step in, in cooling efficiency is, is, is liquid cooling. Well, with liquid cooling, you need a radiator. You need the liquid. You need a pump to move the liquid around to keep it cool. You need a thermostat to control the temperature. And you might as well go with a valve train and put in valves and get rid of the two strokes side of the equation, go to a four stroke engine and you've just added, you know, 13 or 14 pounds to your 38 more horsepower motor to make 39 horsepower. You okay. might as well go to 65 horsepower because that's the point where the, the gap in the thrust to weight ratio lineal plotting recovers. So there's no, there are no options in that, 45 50 horsepower range that makes sense so for people that fly the moster 185 which is pretty popular out there how much thrust is on that do you know well, 
Yeah, I do. And on, on mine, we've measured it about 176 pounds of thrust. Um, John Rippa had the same engine with slightly different propeller and different ratio. His made 180 when we did it down at uh, um, one of the fly-ins last year. Um, but we're, we're talking really about 25 to 27 horsepower. And, and how you manage the thrust is really a function of, of how, you know, that, that doesn't add weight. That's just a matter of tinkering to get thrust differentiations. It's the horsepower that's going to ultimately give you the thrust. So we need to talk about horsepower. And Okay, know, then the how top, much horse? Okay, I'm sorry. Then how much horsepower is the Moster 185 about? Typically, it's going to be 25 horsepower at about 8,200 RPMs. So 25 horsepower. So what would get you up to that range that you're just on that teeter-tottering uh, between air-cooled and liquid then? What, what kind well, of right, right now, your options are the Polini 303. Mm -hmm. um, the the Viterazzi um, Cosmos is the choice that I've already made in my mind. Um, that's the 36 horsepower solution. And it's it stays right on that flat line of plotting thrust to weight ratio. Mm. So to gap up beyond that, there are some solutions. So uh, there, there's a guy, he brought a, a trike to Mountain City's flying. It wasn't a trike, it was a quad, okay? He calls it the Dragon. Super nice guy. I spent a lot of time talking to him at the fly-in. And he has a solution. He's gone with the, the uh, Rotax 503 engine. And that engine makes close to 50 horsepower. And it's air-cooled, but it was notoriously unreliable. Rotax doesn't make it or support it any longer. So you can't, you can't plan production on it. Now, he has. And you can buy the engines rebuilt, but the, the design is 30 years old. The engines are at least 20 years old. And he's offering a warranty with them, which is a cool thing to do as a manufacturer. But he's not, he has not designed that Green Eagle lookalike quad based on an engine that's currently being manufactured. And, and the, the thing that I'm trying to do with the designs that I'm working on is I want to make sure into the future that there's repeatability for the design. So everything is CAD CAM. And the parts can be sourced at least of the day that it, that it leaves my design, we can, we can duplicate it with currently manufactured parts. And you just can't do that with the Rotax 503. Um, hey, Todd, with, those, with, with what you were saying, was that referring to two strokes or is that the same with two strokes and four strokes? Yeah, it really doesn't matter. Uh, th there are reasons to go to four strokes for fuel economy that, that the, the four stroke and cooling with liquid kind of comes bundled to gain the efficiency jumps that you need to make that horsepower in that range. Um, yes, there are two strokes that are liquid cooled. And yes, there are four strokes that are air cooled, but that they're oddities and they, they don't stay on that plotted path of we added more horsepower, we added a little more weight, and there's a linear climb up. They're, they're somewhere off of that chart, which makes them makes them poor choices in my opinion okay so i'd like to build a, a 50 horsepower monster not truck tire monster trike <laughs> um, i'd like to build that trike 50 horsepower 
that, that can easily carry two big 250 or 300 pound guys. So real quick, if you're going to, if you're going to build a trike, why couldn't we build an electric motor with a bunch of different batteries that could let you go fly for a couple hours? Because the, 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 the weight, the weight too long. Okay. There, there's another equation that has to be, you know, what's, what's the, what's the duration of runtime is too short hmm. with the current technology and the weight to get the duration of runtime up to where we would like it to be. I, I, I can't accept a 30 minute when it's over with, you have no power solution. Um, you know, those batteries run until they're completely depleted and bang, you have no, no thrust. If that happened in an hour and change, I'd be more warmed up to it. Um, yeah, the SP140 that I um, uh, a test flew uh, got an hour battery. So, you know, with one battery, it can go for an hour. If you got two batteries on the trike, then possibly, you know, almost two hours with that. I, I think right I now. Think trikes, trikes you, you may be onto something there, or, you know, and I have thought about this too, is, is that that trikes might be more apt to solve this problem or to usher in a greater acceptance of electrics. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I flew a lot of airplanes in my career where they had um, various different styles of batteries built in, in, and engineered into the system. And, and electrical systems in, in transport category airplanes is the backbone of the, the system. That's where your reliability and your safety comes in. That's where the aerial and oil crash that I referenced earlier failed so miserably is they, they had nickel cadmium batteries and they had swapped out the nickel cadmium batteries for early lipo batteries. And the crew didn't understand the difference in how they discharged. And it, it ultimately killed them because of their lack of understanding that they were anticipating the lights to slowly get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer and go down. And that battery ran full power output until it had nothing left and bang, everything went black and they right. crashed in a cornfield. Gotcha. It is almost eight o'clock. Um, JP wants to do a, uh, a group shot for us. And um, we're, we got a ton of uh, questions that we need to ask you. And uh, how, how much time do we have? I mean, we, we've been talking to you for about an hour. Do we have you for another hour, Todd? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Sounds good. JP, whenever you're ready, um, unmute yourself so you can tell us when to. Ready, guys? One, two, three. Oh, I wasn't smiling. <laughs> ready? Okay, one more. Ready? One, two, three. There we go. Perfect. <sighs> I can breathe again. All right, good deal. Hey, Resurgence um, PPG had a, a question for you, Todd. He says, um, would. Uh, can you help me with a trike we need for a paraplegic we are getting ready to sponsor? Absolutely. But I don't know timing wise. Yeah, I'd do anything for Todd. Um, and I, I, I know that, um, you know, in, in one of my videos, I referenced that Santa Croce used a wheelchair conversion for their um, project airtime trike that they take folks in that situation up with. And uh, absolutely, if, if we had a chance to sit down and discuss, um, you know, what, what Todd wants out of that trike, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. <clears throat> Are you going to Bad Apples this year? 
That's uh, I, I haven't committed to it yet. Um, I know I'm going to go to the replacement for the Palm Bay Fly-In, which is going to be down there at Okeechobee again. That, that's a really good venue. There's so many cool places to fly around there. Um, we'll, we'll see with Bad Apples. Um, I, I kind of felt it was a little crazy last year. And, and, you know, I thought it was unfair for me to take up as much space as I did with my motorhome. So maybe if I went back, I would look for um, off site camping and just attend the flying by car or fly in over there. I'll let you borrow my tent. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't take any space at all. <laughs> I think I'm going to bring a big tent too to bad apples. And as far as um, flying bad apples, I, I will commit to other than that. I don't know what I can do. I got a real important question here. This is from, um, I haven't heard of this guy, JP Tulo. Wondering. <laughs> Uh, who your favorite PPG TikToker who's sitting on the panel tonight and has a cloud wallpaper? I um, how many views? The how how many views is his most viewed TikTok had? Two and a half million last time I checked. Right? Isn't that amazing? What uh, social media is just out of control? Nothing to do with paramotors, by the way. No, that one. Mm -hmm. That one. Uh, it had it had something to do with a paramotor, paramotor pilot, though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Who would that be? Shameless plug. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's well worth it. Well worth it. Whoops. Everybody Whoops. gets a, everybody gets a shameless plug on this channel. We know that. <laughs> so, hey, you want to talk Why about material selection? As far yeah, as like, know? as far as like building an actual paramotor. Uh, a trike a trike there yes so okay let's I'm... ask one i got one more question here all right um uh marshall laney he has a question do you fly with an adsb in would you fly with an adsb out if it was available for ppg absolutely me too absolutely uh no i don't fly with an in um, I don't think there's a whole lot of value in knowing that you're about to be run over by somebody because we can't maneuver out of the way so much. Um, and, you know, the, the, the theater of operation for a, um, a paramotor is pretty small. You know, you, you should have a pretty good idea of what's going on there aviation-wise. And maybe you don't because you're not from the area, but you'll figure it out pretty quickly. You know, if you take off and you see, oh, wow, there's – guys in uh, military airplanes doing touch and goes here at the runway. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that uh, I don't think having ADSB in would really, plus to wearing my glasses, it's all I can do to see the screen on my iPad or on my phone while I'm flying. I can't imagine trying to manage another display device to give me that kind of information. But I'd love to have out. Do you see that in our future? Oh, that's a complicated question. So um, Mark Ingram runs a, a, a fairly small um, group on Facebook where we talk about this stuff. And it, it doesn't have a lot of discussion because there's a lot of limitations in the installation and certification of these systems. And I, I think it's coming. I think the regulations, the regulators need to make some adjustments or some acceptances for 103 operators because it's pretty tightly written that 
it's not really something that we're we're able to do and meet the 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 standards of the uh, the airworthiness certificates or advisory circulars for installation of ADSB equipment. There's not enough wiggle room in the in the regulatory side of it. Gotcha. Now let's talk about the materials. This is the good stuff, the nitty gritty. All right. So what do you guys think a trike should be built out of? Something light and strong. So yeah, I like that idea. Maybe carbon fiber and uh, aircraft aluminum, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say carbon fiber for some parts, and I'm going to say aluminum and titanium for other parts. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm not even ruling out tube steel. Um, 4130 chromoly tube steel is an amazing product. It's easy to weld. It's relatively, until COVID, it was relatively available in lots of different sizes. Um, the, the carbon fiber thing has just absolutely fascinated me. Um, when, when Philip and I started talking about, you know, a better propeller. And, and so what, what drives a lot of this desire to build stuff or desire to design stuff is the fact that nothing's built in the United States. I mean, does anybody own or fly a, a paramotor or a paramotor frame that is built in the United States? Yes, I do. Which, which is yours? I got the uh, Skytap Angel from Andrew Fuller. He also makes the Spartan. Um, is, isn't Blackhawk made in uh, America too? Or I think that Blackhawk is making their low boy three trike in the United States, yes. Okay, so I think Andrew Fuller is the only person that uh, I know, unless you guys know somebody else, that... Um, 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 the, the Sky Cruiser that's made up there in Minnesota, that's a domestically produced one. Okay. Um, so the, the, uh, Philip kind of said, Hey, you know, let, help, will you help me with this working on this fiberglass composite, you know, carbon fiber impregnated materials and how are they doing it? So the, the they that, that sticks out in Philip's mind is Helix and EPROP. And we think we know how their props are made, but they're not, they're they're not an easy process and the, the tooling to build those propellers and, and people wreck a lot of propellers. So the props aren't really particularly expensive, but there's so many of them that get sold that warrants some research and development and, and production costs on the front end. Cause I think you'll recover it if you're selling enough props. Um, so the, uh, the carbon fiber process learning curve for me has been really, really steep. Uh, there is a lot to know. Um, and I, I had this bias that, that goes back to the early days of, I owned a sailboat for a while in the Chicago area. It was one of the first production fiberglass boats in America. It was made by a company called Pearson. And somebody had taken the short little boat and cut it in half and extended it like 12 feet and they made it into a catch rig boat and they, they did it with chopped carbon or chopped fiberglass out of a spray gun. Well, that boat hull weighed about 8,000 pounds. Um, so it was ridiculously heavy. Um, so I had this bias that, you know, carbon fiber stuff's neat because it's light and it has a very high strength to weight ratio. There we go with that, that relationship to weight again. So I started learning with, with Philip and um, 
I don't think that all of the parts, you know, to, to answer my own question, I don't think all of the parts in a paramotor frame or trike should be made out of carbon fiber. Um, I, I chose in build one to make everything out of metal, mostly aluminum, uh, a little bit of 4130 tube steel. And build number two, I decided I would make all of the fittings out of carbon fiber. So I had to learn how to do it. Um, and I'm not completely proficient yet. So here's the process that I've been following. I, th I think of conceptualize the part that I need. And a lot of times this isn't, this doesn't come out of thin air. It's like, you know, you've got two pieces of metal that cross each other and they need to be, they need to be hooked together. So you got to build a clamp that, that holds them together. So I designed the clamp in CAD software. And then I take that design of the clamp and I create a negative mold around it and figure out how to split it apart. And, and this is what I've been printing out. This is what the, the clamps kind of look like or the, the molds kind of look like. And this is, this is one component of a, a three or four component mold that will ultimately get compressed together and it'll make a carbon fiber part. So when you get the mold all printed out, um, you mix up epoxy and you mix the epoxy with raw carbon fiber. This, this is uh, something called chopped toe. It's um, it, a pound of this cost me about 35 bucks or so. And you, you can't mix it directly with the epoxy. You have to inlay it by hand and you build up sequential layers and then you smash smash it together and you try to squeeze as much of the epoxy out of the matrix as you can because the, there's a there's an ideal ratio for strength to weight and it's about 60 percent carbon fiber to about 40 percent cured resin and you don't have to hit that but um that's the strongest that you're going to get so if you have if you don't have enough resin you're going to have part delamination problems. If you have too much resin, you're going to have weakness and cracking and, and the resin tends to deteriorate in solar conditions, degradation. So after this cures tomorrow, I'll, I'll have to chisel the mold off of here. I won't be able to separate it. You know, with more expensive molds, if this was made out of aluminum or stainless steel, I would be able to pry it apart and get the part out of it. But because I 3D printed this for a dollar on my 3D printer, it's, it's destructible and it's all waste material, except for the part that's inside. And, and when the part that's inside comes out, this is what the part looks like. So this, this component is part of a clamp system and it does just like I said, it, it's gonna tie the, the front spar to the paramotor frame that I'm bolting to it. This is the more permanent application. And this component weighs about 53 grams. So it's, it's approximately 75% of the weight of aluminum. Um, the sourcing costs on it were a, a, about the same cost of buying a block of aluminum and machining this. Uh, it's repeatable because I, I can print out more molds and make more of them. And it's five times lighter than steel. Is that, this, something that, is that something you can make a whole pair motor out of? Absolutely. Wow. This thing is infinitely strong. I, I, there is zero flex in this piece of material. 
Um, now it's not impact resistant. You know, that's the problem with a scout. You know, you trip and fall on a scout, you've got a lot of expensive repair work to do. Um, but in, in the right doses, I think this is a, an, an amazing material. So what this has given me is, you know, you, you asked about clamping the, so this is, this is a two component clamp that I've been working on. And this is gonna bolt around the main axle. And the smaller hole here is going to bolt around the paramotor frame at the bottom. And this is going to hold the two together and they won't be able to separate because this will be through bolted. And this, these two components weigh about 30, 30 grams a piece. Now the equivalent components made out of aluminum would weigh, you know, 60 and made out of steel. They'd be, they'd be closer to a pound for this, these two components. Wow. That, that that's amazing and and how did you come up with this ratio and and this for pair motors where this pop ah, the internet so that skillshare is the the name of the, the the sponsor that's sponsoring peter it's called skillshare um there there are so the purveyors uh, the people that want to sell you this stuff they're out there creating training content for how to do this, how to make carbon fiber infusions, how to do vacuum bagging, how to how to do open layup carbon fiber. Um, the information's out there. You just gotta go searching for it. It doesn't cost anything. I mean, the, the material costs, but the the knowledge doesn't cost anything. You just gotta go find it. Wow, amazing. So I had a friend get hurt in a, very badly in a paramotor accident. And um, it, it was a sad situation because he's a really good guy. And I wish he, he quit flying over it. And I wish he was still flying. Um, my impression of how he got hurt was because he was flying at a tree. And he squeezed the throttle expecting paramotor to rotate out in front and him to climb up and go over the tree and he was at such a high weight to thrust equation that all that happened was it accelerated him and he crashed into the tree hmm. uh, I, I, I rate of climb or excess thrust to be able to climb is so important it, it is the the single thing over the, back to my airline career, the single thing that made the early days of flying at the airline dangerous, and I honestly believe that it's just by the grace of God that I wasn't involved in an accident in some of those early days until the better equipment came along. And by better equipment, I mean more thrust to weight ratio, better material selection, you know, better manufacturing processes, um, better engineering in CAD, um, better, better training in so far as, um, you know, crew concepts and those things, but that, that's a whole nother topic that human factors side of aviation is a whole nother topic. Um, but I, I think this, this guy, this guy would have never had that accident if he would have been on a trike that was weight shift capable, number one. And that had enough extra thrust that when he squeezed the throttle, he'd have gone up and over that tree. That accident would have never occurred. 
So how big of engine are you talking about? You're talking about like that Pliny 303 type of thing or, or that four stroke with. Okay. Uh, so this, th this leads to um, when I started thinking, I want to do this. I want, I want to start building trikes. I got sniffing around and there's a guy here in Florida who was very gracious. He gave me a, a, the better part of two hours of his time one day. And we talked about motor selection. And I, I don't, as much as I appreciate the time that he gave me, I, I disagree with his basic philosophy in building. So he's built over 200 wheeled paramotor devices. Yeah, you guys probably don't even know they exist. We see them at fly-ins. Uh, they roll in on trailers. They might look like they're 25 or 30 years old. Um, for the most part, they're built around a lot of different engines. Um, I think one of the worst choices for a paramotor engine is one of these construction equipment conversion engines. So, so they get sold on the idea that they're four-stroke engines, so they're more reliable. They, a lot of times they have fuel injection, they have dual ignition, they have electric start, they get all the bells and whistles, but they weigh 125 pounds. And they're putting out 35, 37 horsepower. And, and um, it was suggested to me in, in search around Briggs and Stratton has a line of engines that they call their Vanguard series. And they're, they're high-end construction equipment engines. You know, if you need to run a concrete mixer all day long for the next three years, that's the engine to buy because you don't care about weight. And that thing's bolted to a trailer and you, you drag it to the job site. I personally think it's an absolutely lousy choice for an engine to put on a paramotor device of any kind. They're just too heavy. And really, if you go 10 more pounds, so that makes 35 horsepower, you go 10 more pounds, you can get into the Rotax 9 series engines. They're 135 pounds installed. They make 112 pounds of thrust. So that's where that, that linear equation, you know, Here's the, if you're graphing weight and, and power, here's the, the Viterazzi 180, well, here, here's the Atom 80, here's the Viterazzi 185, here's the uh, Cosmos and the Polini 303. And then way down here is the 35 horsepower, or I should say if weight's up here, way up here is the weight of those construction engines. And then the next engine on the graph is an aviation engine that, that that makes an appropriate thrust to weight ratio. Um, so I, I get talking with this guy and I'm not gonna divulge his name. Um, I don't think he's committed to building any more paramotors. He had, uh, I asked him with 200 of these things out there, undoubtedly you've built one that somebody got hurt or killed in. And he was very open and honest about that. Um, yeah, he said, um, I. I did it. As a matter of fact, I had, I had one that, uh, the guy got killed. In. I said, well, what was the fallout from that? Was there any liability concerns? Did, did you get sued over this? Um, the family made the decision to destroy the paramour. And I think, I don't know that I'd be so lucky. So going forward, how, if I, if I really want to do this, 
And I think, I think I can design something that as we age and all of us move into a, a decision that, Hey, you know, I really still love paramotoring. I just can't foot launch anymore. I, I'm going to start looking at trikes or, or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to do the trike thing and I'm going to commit to it. Um, I think I could build something that the average guy is going to say, that's the one that I want, or that one is better because of these reasons that appeal to me. You know, you're never going to capture hundred percent of the market. And I, that wouldn't be my intent. My intent would be to build a repeatable production machine. You can get parts for very easily. The manufacturer, the engine is going to stand behind their warranty and it's going to have ergonomic features and flying characteristics that appeal to a large percentage of the pilot group. Um, I think I can build that thing. I, I, I'm really struggling with, you know, the, the engine choice is, is, um, is, is for me pretty much right now, given Rick Davies' experience with the uh, Polini, um, I was already calling uh, Sky Sports to see about the engine that they had in stock. It was a Cosmos dual ignition, dual start engine. It's got a retail price right now of about 4,900 bucks. I drug my feet on it for a week and Rick Davies bought that engine. So good for Rick. So um, th they'll make more. And that's what I like about it. They'll make more, you know, un unlike the, the RMZ 1500 or whatever it is that the Russian knockoff of the, the Rotax 503, who knows what the supply of those things is going to be down the road. Right. <clears throat> um, let's see. It's almost 20 after eight. Um, any questions that we haven't uh, asked uh, in the chat or on the panel? No, there's nothing in the, there's nothing in the chat right at the moment that I'm aware of. Um, I want to, I want to kind of go back to your carbon fiber stuff that you were designing instead of using like a DOM metal, are you using, are you thinking of, making molds for the carbon fiber for all that and um, so, the whole thing carbon so those, those metal components um they're pretty good at absorbing impact damage and deflection prior to failure whereas carbon fiber is a little more rigid and 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 those are the components i i think for the long term you know guys use fiberglass axles on a lot of the trikes and, and a, a, an awful lot of the trikes out there are using a, a one inch or inch and a quarter fiberglass shaft that inserts into a steel tube. And that's where they get a little bit of flex, but I want to build a machine that has true suspension and the, the, the flex with those fiberglass rods isn't dampened. It's just, it's just random flex out there. And because it's thick enough, it's able to absorb that, but it, they're, they come with a weight penalty. Those things are pretty heavy. And I, I think that for the choices that I've made, 6160 is a better choice and 7075, which is a, a little more tensile strength oriented aluminum is, is um, even better yet. So the, the first trike that I built has a uh, one solid piece, 6061 hollow, piece of tubing for the axle and the very end of it is plugged with with bushings that i made out of 70 75 to mount the wheels to um i i don't see that changing anytime soon but there, there are techniques out there so there, there's a 
there's a way to take any size tubing that you want and wrap it in carbon fiber and bake it in an autoclave and cool the metal out from the inside and slip it off of there. And now you've got a carbon fiber tube that, that, that can work, but you know, it, so let's say you were to fly in and you taxied and one wheel went into a ditch and for a moment got twisted and, and torqued a little bit. You might be able to bring it back to your trailer and with some brute force bend that axle straight enough to fly and, and finish the rest of the flying. If that happened with carbon fiber, you're done because yeah, it's going to fracture. Right. And one of, one of the problems with, with any of these composite type materials is it's not really easy to assess how damaged the part is if they get damaged. So I think you want to limit the use of carbon components and carbon fiber components to areas that are either need to be thin and you want to be aesthetic or like this, where they're, they're, they're in a part of the construction that's not likely to absorb any impact. So I hope that answers that question. But yeah, I do have a question. Um, what features are you thinking about putting on a uh, production trike like you're talking about? What are some of the features that you think people would want to have on a trike? And before you answer that, JP has to go. So farewell, JP. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us as long as you have. Yeah, always a pleasure, guys. Todd, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, um, really appreciate. It. Man, I wish I could listen. I could listen to what you, I you, Your mind is like, you know, I, you, <laughs> I you really need to write. Just regurgitate. I I don't think one book would be big enough, dude. You really need to write a book. <laughs> like everything that you've got up there, it's uh, I think it's so uh, too. very impressive. So thank well, you so thanks. much for have, coming have on. A good evening. You bet. You too, yep. guys. I'll catch you guys later. Thank you very much, JP. And um, also too, guys, uh, thank you very much for listening to us. We'll we'll probably just keep on talking until, you know, Todd can't talk anymore. Um, if you guys are interested in uh, the spinning wheel of Winnie things, we're not going to do that. However, I do want to send some stickers out from uh, Paraswag USA. Uh, Mark George has given us a stack of these things to give away. So thank you, Mark and Amy. We appreciate you. Um, and I'll tell you how to do that in just a moment. So Todd features that, um, that you think people would really need or want in a trike. So the, the, the there's a fellow that flies the green, green Eagle, the, the green Eagle crowd is, is, um, man, there's some good guys in there. Um, they, um, they fly a lot and, you know, Ashton Brunner built that Green Eagle or designed that Green Eagle machine. It's a quad. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It, it uses a Kohler equipment engine as its power plant. Um, and they came out of the, if you dare call it a factory, they came out of, of um, Ashton's hangar down there in Austin, Texas, um, right at about 254 pounds, right? So you, you guys know that the the FAA has said that you can participate in FAR 103 with your flying contraption as long as its basic weight doesn't exceed 254 pounds, right? Does everybody know that? Yes. And um, reserves and other things don't count towards that weight. So, 
you know, that's the number that I, I don't know how the FAA came up with that number. I, I wasn't around when FAR 103 was crafted, but man, it, it was written for guys like me. You know, I had a lifetime of highly regulated aviation and, you know, even without my health concerns, which would have prevented me from flying, it's so refreshing to not have to do all of the regulated side of the stuff. But you know, that 254 pound limit's pretty high in my opinion, especially with the technology that's available today. So the, the number one thing that those guys have done to reduce the weight of their machine, which will definitely be incorporated in my build of my monster trike, is hanging harnesses instead of a fixed seat. They're every bit as comfortable. And, you know, you look at the Phoenix Flyer, you look at the, um, the Zenit, trike you look at some of these dual roll bar type trikes where the, the harnesses are hanging from those they're completely adjustable you can put the harness on make all the adjustments step out of the harness and hook it up to that machine and and set it and forget it kind of a thing and a lot of them are, are single point or or maybe three point attachment um, you're not going to fall out of it they're they're very comfortable because they're fabric they breathe so if it's hot you're you're not particularly sweaty have you um, seen have you seen the um the skytap paramotor uh, uh angel um it has the uh the fixed um the the fixed uh um comfort bars yeah. comfort bars if you want to say that and they do hang and they also have a lot of weight shift when it bolts on to my trike uh, buggy or whatever you want to call it um it does have a lot of weight shift and i am sitting in it very comfortably um, I have flown other ones that uh, were on the ground, you know, or are kind of more, I don't know, fixed. Yeah, and, uh, kind of a concept. Yeah, yeah. And I really do like the way that this thing actually sits. It kind of just, it cradles you and you can weight shift left and right, just like you do when you when you um, foot launch. Um, is that what you're kind of trying to talk about? Or is that what um, you're trying to say? Well, Something you like know, that? a lot of these bigger trikes, uh, they're flying them with these triax wings. And they're just simply not relying on weight shift. I, I mean, Eric, you get a few trikes. What, what, what's the big one that you have? Well, we have the trike buggies. Um, and that has the suspension seat in it. And that's fully adjustable for us. Um, and, and we're getting the Zenith here soon. We don't have it yet. So... I, uh, I almost bought a used trike buggy. In fact, that's kind of what set me on this path to build my first trike was that it had, uh, it, you know, Chad Bastion designed that thing. And, and I, I, didn't, I didn't care for the way the risers fed down through those. The hoops. Yeah, I, I'm going to call them pitch limiting hoops, but um, I, didn't, right. I didn't care for that. And this particular trike was, uh, cobbled together from some parts that had a very short operational history and an engine failure. And I, it wasn't right. And, and I could have made it right. It, the price was right. And somebody, whoever bought it, it was a fair price um, for it, it was a motor, a frame, a reserve, all kinds of spare equipment and a virtually brand new trike buggy for like four grand. It was, it was a screaming deal. Um, and I didn't buy it because it wasn't the right price. I bought it because I wasn't looking for that project. Or even if, if I'd have seen that project to the end and gotten it all tweaked and 
worked out all the bugs on the engine. I didn't like the trike design. No offense if, if you're happy with yours. One of the issues is a lot of these heavier trikes are simply excluding themselves from participating in any sort of weight shifting. You can squirm around all you want. That thing's rock solid up there. You're not, you're not, you're not imparting a lot of steering control to the wing by shifting your weight around. And I, I think I'm kind of willing to make that concession because you, you fly it differently. You know, you're not going to fly near the ragged edge of stall. You're going to fly that wing fast. You're going to make, um, you know, the roll in and roll out of your turns is going to be more of a decisive maneuver rather than a last minute type thing. Um, you're going to fly it more like a fixed wing airplane, if I dare say that. Um, no, that's, that's very accurate because when you get into – when I'll park that and get into the foot launch, you know that the foot launch is more maneuverable, you know, with that weight shift. Yep. And, and I'm willing to make that concession to build what I think I want to build. Um, I, the other thing, Sean, is a, is a, an infinitely variable way to manage center of gravity, weight and balance, if you will, and the attach points of the wing. And, and that's pretty easily done. You know, most of those they either have rails with a lot of clips or they have, they have gone to the soft lengths that, that are limited in travel by, by um, you know, aluminum stops that clamp to that bar. I, I mean, that, that's pretty much a no-brainer. Comfort has got to be pretty high. Um, I, I'm really liking the idea on these type of devices to have access to electric start. You don't want to be pulling the start cord when you're trying to give a tandem. You know what I'd like to see on a trike is a enclosure when it's cold, you don't have all that wind blowing on you. And it's, a little oh, bit, you know, yeah. I don't know, like, like, like the free flight pod, something like that, but maybe that, um, you know, with well, a, the good helmet that, you know, you, you don't freeze to death out there. And you there's, know, you know, we talked it. about this today and I think you alluded to it earlier. Um, what if we combined a couple of these ideas? What if we took Peter Schipple's, or Stripple's um, ducted fan concept and built it into a trike that had an enclosure pod. That would be interesting. However, he was having some issues with the lines going over that, that double fan thing. He might need to put a hoop around it just for the line guides. But uh, I think he'll be able to solve that. So, you know, he can epoxy in. That was a function of something in the structure sticking through those ducts a little too far. And if, if he just plans a little bit better on uh, iteration number two or three or four, and that, that's the beauty of CAD. You don't have to go back to the drawing board and start over again. You go back to the drawing board and you change one little thing and you've got, you know, if I don't know if you noticed in the beginning of his video, he was cutting all the foam out with a CNC machine. And then all he did was stack all the foam together and fiberglass over the top of it. I saw that. That looked pretty cool. So, I mean, that part's already solved. He doesn't need to redesign that. He just needs to redesign how far those, those spars that mount the motors or whatever they do, that they don't protrude through the outside of those ducted fan things. And I think he'd be better off doing one single ducted fan. That'd be pretty neat. And I'm sure you've seen that one lady that uh, had that big, long pole with the uh, with the fans yeah, well. that kind of pulled her up into the air with a with a free flight. That was pretty spectacular, too. 
Well, I think there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pike. And um, to the extent that I can, um, I struggle with the concept of being the guy that does the sales. Um, I just don't want to be that guy. I don't, I don't want to be the guy that handles the, the, the uh, warranty issues. Not that I wouldn't want to stand behind the warranty issues. I don't want to be the guy answering the phone listening to the story of how it is that it doesn't work and I need to fix it for somebody. Um, maybe, maybe I think if I come up with a trike design, that's easily repeatable, especially if I can outsource the production, I'll, I'll tell you what, these, these little components like this motor mount, this is a tremendous amount of time on a prototype basis. Um, if you went to production with it, this process of compression molded, carbon fiber doesn't lend itself to production very well. There are other processes that do, but the, you know, the, the parts have been built. So now that I, if I could get help making these kind of parts, I'd think about selling the whole design, but I got to get something flying that I let other people fly and they say, wow, I want one of those. And it happens. I mean, it happens to a lot of people. That's how a lot of airplanes get launched, you know, guys build one in their garage and they let their buddy fly it. And all of a sudden now there's two of them and then they go to fly-ins and they give rides and everybody wants one. And now they're in business. So. Absolutely. Um, any other questions in the chat that we've missed Eric or will Brian, Brian Waller was asking if uh, you have training as a mechanical engineer. I do not, you know, so um, I studied I wish I did. I wish I'd have gone through an engineering program and it was available to me at the university that I went to, but I just, I picked business administration because it allowed me to, to bluff and spend as much time at the airport flying as I could. But professionally, you cannot escape the amount of training that you get in engineering realms. So in order to, to get through some of the systems understanding of turbine airplanes, you sit down with people sometimes from the manufacturer um you know be it boeing or mcdonald douglas at the time or whoever it is and and you get a lot of face-to-face -face time with the guys that decided how it was going to be the engineering teams um you know i have had the uh the privilege of visiting a couple of those factories while they were in production building airplanes that i flew over the course of my career and talking with the engineers directly and so if i have a bent toward it it comes from professional aviation and if I have any specific training, I'm not even going to claim any of those credentials because, you know, so much of those engineering courses are math-based, um, you know, pure theory. There's not a lot of application there anyways at the educational level. Anyways. So no, something, the tells to me, something tells me you would do really, really good in engineering school. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, you can't live life over again. And, um, you know, I had, I had college roommates that were in the engineering program and I never saw them. They were always, they were always at the library working. And I mean, working and they, a couple of them worked for NASA for a while um, after college, but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to fly. And there's, there was no way I could get the flying time in that I got in college um, and go through the engineering program at the same time. So I kind of bluffed my way through business school and got a degree in finance. Right on. Yeah. Last question is uh, Bill H. Uh, well, not last question, but Bill H. wants to know 
what fly-ins you're planning on attending? Um, I, I definitely will be at the Okeechobee fly-in in two weeks or in, in March, I guess it is. That's a little bit more than two weeks. Uh, in two weeks, I'm going to be in Wachula for a while there. Uh, I'm, I had a, a buddy of mine from home ask me to teach him how to fly paramotors. I said, you know, I, I know what's involved. And I, I've, I've trained a lot of people how to fly um, fixed wing. And this is, a, this is a big commitment to ask from me. And I'm not, I'm not prepared. I'm, first of all, I'm not a USPPA instructor. And I don't plan on becoming one. Secondly, I don't have a curriculum. Yeah, in my mind, I know what you need to know. But I, don't, I haven't worked it out and written down a paper curriculum of what we're going to do for lesson number three today. Um, and there's guys that have, and they really don't charge that much. And I'm going to go there and I convinced him to buy training from one up adventure and, uh, he's going to be down there. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to being there working with him. I may volunteer to teach one or two of the classes. J Justin Fox in the past has asked me to teach weather and airspace, and we'll, we'll see where that goes this year. Um, um, so I plan to be at that, and that, that kind of becomes a fly-in, although it's technically a paid training course. Uh, a lot of people show up to those. Um, that fly-in in eastern Virginia, I'd really like to go back to that. Um, I forget what the name of it was. It, it was out on the outer, uh, the outer banks of Virginia, north of uh, Virginia Beach. But my oldest son used to live in Virginia Beach, and he doesn't anymore. So there's less incentive for me to get up that way. That that one's coming up in the in the fall this year. Um, Is that Pace? It was Pace Field. Yeah, yeah, that one was really enjoyable. I, I love flying around that area. I plan on going to that one this year. Yeah, I'd like to do some more of the western ones, um, and some of the lesser known ones. I, if they do that Holland, Michigan flying again this year, I I might find my way up there early summer, but. I have a construction project at my house that I'm going to need to supervise for um, most of the late spring and early summer. Holland, Michigan is awesome. Yeah, I, have you, I, oh, that's I, right. I, I remember you posted fly in. I did. I got to hang out with that fly when I was visiting my sister over there. And yeah. uh, it was fun. Yeah. I got to hang out with everybody. And yeah, Holland, it's beautiful. Yeah. It was a little, a little warm, but yeah, you got to do it. It was, it was super fun. I, yep. I'd like to do that one. I'll probably end up at Bad Apples for at least a little while. Um, uh, all my buddies go there and um, sure. no, it's, that's close to home. So that's an easy drive. I mean, if, if I'm in South Carolina, that only takes me about three and a half hours to get over there. So here you go. Then it's a plan. Got to do yeah. it. One of these years, I want to get down there to Kylo Glees when he does his Thanksgiving fly-in, but that's a hard one. My wife likes to be home at Thanksgiving, so that'd be a tough sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that that that's a fun fun place to be. So let's go, let's go. Yeah. But Holland is fun. That that airport's pretty cool. It's a lot of fun down there. Yeah, I stopped and flew with him um, one night. We got together and hung out. And you know what I wanted to see from Kyle was his his. Yeah, you guys remember when he built that um, the frame that had the gas tank integral to the to the mount? He called it the Dirty Bird, and sadly, it's hanging on the wall in his hangar. He never flies it. And I said, "Why don't you fly that thing?" I mean, you spent all that time building it. You'd think that that'd be a pretty 
pretty cool. And he didn't really have an explanation for why. He's just I don't like life goes on, got busy. Oh, that's okay. Well, I don't know. I hope we probably ran off all the legitimate people by now, huh? No, we still got a bunch of questions coming in. Still got a full house. That's right. And then questions. Paramotor NC, Ben. Uh, What wing would you recommend for someone stepping up after one year on an A-rated wing? Hands down. um, Well, okay, so... First of all, I'm not a gear guy, right? I'll fly any, this is a great story. And I, I'm sorry, I don't answer anything directly, Ben. I know what you're getting at here, but have you guys ever read the book Jaeger about Chuck Jaeger? It, it's his own personal biography. You, you really should read it. It's fantastic. He's a bit of an egotist, but in his book, he talks about the, the advent of the century jets. The, the, the F-100, the F-101, all the way through the F-106. Um, and he was a test pilot working for the Air Force, and they were vetting all of these potential jets. And they had, they had a unit, and there were some F-100s and some F-101s in the unit. And they were constantly dogfighting. And he got into a discussion with one of the other pilots, and he was qualified in both airplanes. So they went out and dog, dog fought, dogfighted. And Jaeger won, hands down, the dogfight. They came back and landed and debriefed. They switched airplanes. He got in that guy's airplane, which is the 101, and, and he did the same thing, and he beat him in the dogfight again the second time. So for that reason, I'm not really a gear guy. This is a better question, a wing selection question. It's a better guy for a guy like John Rippa, who, who really eats, sleeps, and drinks, and has owned and flown every wing out there. But having said that, all of these manufacturers are, are targeting specific markets with their wings. They have an A-rated wing as a school wing. They have a B wing, which is a little sportier. I hate the word um, spicier. I don't think that conveys anything. The, it's more maneuverable, and it has a greater speed range. Um, they typically have a C wing that's targeting cross-country flying, and they typically have a C-wing that's targeting maneuvering flight or maybe even aerobatics, although it's not quite a full-on aerobatic wing. Then they have their competition slalom wings and their aerobatic wings. Across the board, any of those cross-country wings, if that's your style, be it the MacPara Colorado, be it the Gin Falcon, be it the Link 2, be it the, the, the Cougar, um, those wings are going to be vastly different than those A-rated wings. They're going to ditch some of that drag that gives you that passive safety. Um, they're going to really open your eyes to energy management that needs to be learned, that the A-wing isn't going to teach you as, as, as smartly as those faster wings with less drag. And you're going to notice a lot more capability to pick a destination, go to it, and reliably get there and come back. So I, I, I can't really say one wing is better. And, you know, for a while I was a Mac Parrot dealer. I don't know if I am or not. Still, I haven't sold a wing since the import successorship changed hands from Andy over to uh, Brian Goff. Um, I don't know what I, where I stand with Brian. If I, if I needed a wing for somebody, if Brian would sell me one or not at dealer cost, I don't know. But um, I, I do like the Mac Parrot lineup, but I've never owned an Ozone product. I really like the Dudek product line. Um, 
I think that the Hadron 3 is a bit of a step from an A-wing. That's probably not, not a, a step that the average guy should make. Um, but yeah, I'd step into a reflex wing with, with um, the ability to add 2D steering at some point. I think that that's the normal progression for people in our sport, isn't it? Love that 2D, the, the 2D steering. It's just amazing. I'm my Colorado. Um, Resurgence PPG, he's, I'm going to combine them. What's the best flying experience been with cross-country flights? And could you please <laughs> confirm who the good-looking Todd is? <laughs> yeah, uh, he, he's definitely got me in the looks department. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that, 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 that whole thing. We, we can't talk. We've talked about that on other shows and other venues. But, man, that... Scandrit had this this wild idea that we needed to do a cross country and and it just went downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> I volunteered to be the ground guy and um, it, it was a lot of fun and only one guy finished that whole iron triangle and it was mostly due to weather. The weather was really not very cooperative. Would you ever think uh, of doing the Icarus race since? Heck no. At my age, uh, well, uh, okay. You're, you're, no, you're, not that much, you're not that much older than I am. It's not just a function of age, um, Sean. You, you, if you haven't watched it, you need to go back and watch Tucker through that thing. It is physically grueling. That oh, race I, is unbelievable. I watched it. I saw how chapped and sunburned he was and, and physically exhausted and trying to find places to – to sleep and yeah yeah that takeoff he does out of that parking lot in jackpot nevada he yeah. literally runs off the end of the parking lot and it's a boulder strewn watershed for a thousand feet down into a valley if if that takeoff wouldn't have worked you know he might not have gotten killed but he'd have had seven or eight broken bones i i, I can't i can't keep up with that pace um well, I mean, I mean, they got the they have the um, they have the two different types of races, right? They have the races that are not assisted, and they got the ones that are assisted. So you can always do the assisted races that have. Well, yeah, I'm always up for adventure flying, but I mean, let's be honest about it. You know, that's that's kind of like the it's like playing B string football in high school. Well, still be cool. You can still say you did the Icarus race, <laughs> well, right? You can say that, but not everybody's going to believe you. Come on. <laughs> if you put it on YouTube, they would. <laughs> no, I, I'd, I'd much rather get together with a group of buddies and say, we're going to go around the base of this mountain and we're going to go up the valley and then we're going to come back down here and we're going to sightsee. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I know. Uh, and I watched that. I'll tell you, if you don't watch it, the, the, the X Alps, if you haven't watched a couple of the seasons of the X Alps on, on YouTube, you need to do that. Those, those guys are sold out athletes. And, you know, my days of being an athlete are, are well behind me. You know, I, I have some legitimate physical concerns that I, I try to avoid high G flying. And I, um, yeah, it's, it's just not for me, but I, I watched Kriegel Maurer and I, I, his dominance of the X Alps is unbelievable. Um, and, and those, those guys are hiking, you know, if the weather's bad, those guys are climbing, they're, they're climbing six and 7,000 meters a morning, and then they're launching and sled riding down and doing it again. So they're in position for that evening. That's just a grueling 
physical demanding. Yeah. I got into PPG and paramotoring and paragliding way too late. You know, if I'd have done it in my twenties, it would have been a different story, but you know, wait until I was in my fifties, forget it. Yeah. I hear you. I feel the same way. And, um, Oh, just stop. You guys are like so old. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, please, please. We're trying to stay young at heart and that's why we're doing the paramotor thing. You know, I mean, we're that's both right. foot launching. We enjoy I the know. triking when, when we're able to trike, which is fun. I enjoy triking, yeah. but I really enjoy foot launching. I definitely want to foot launch <laughs> as long as possible. Oh my um, God. You're all like over the hill. Good Lord. Well, we're over the 50 at least. Oh, okay. I, I have right now. You know what? I'm just going to. Because this is what my mom always told me. If a woman tells her age, then she tells everything. So I'll leave it at that. Well, don't tell us <laughs> your age. Don't close. tell us your age. But, no, what year, I, but, but what year were you born? <laughs> yeah, my closest, closest pair of peeps, no, but I don't, I just like, you know, it's no problem. Ask what, who, who was the president when you were born? I mean, that would work. Oh, good Lord. Really? Really? <laughs> well, you, well you know, know, well, you know what it is, right? Women lie about their age and guys lie about our height. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. that's it. Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So that's another subject, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, did, did we miss any um, questions in the chat or did we catch up finally? Yeah. So Brian Waller asks, what was your crazy, craziest launch you've seen in person? Was it at a fly-in? Oh, absolutely. Holy smokes. Some, some of the, I'll tell you the, the, the level of discipline has gotten a lot better at fly-ins. Um, some of the early fly-ins that I went to were just absolutely crazy. You know, uh, I think about Jeff Pearson's was the first fly-in that I went to up there in, in North Carolina. And, you know, Jeff's a colorful character. I like Jeff a lot, but when I got to the field, he says, Hey, y'all, you can do whatever you want. There ain't no rules. <laughs> what? How do you have a fly-in and say there's no rules? And that is exactly what happened. There were no rules. So, you know, guys, can I pin it down to one? I mean, holy smokes. There was one at Bad Apples, I think, two years ago, where the guy's wing came up. He didn't have very good pitch control. It surged forward. He got back underneath it. And I, I want to say, yeah, he was foot launching. And he jumped into the seat, and that's never good, you know. And he got really, really quickly rotated back, had a little bit of riser twist, finally got enough airspeed to have some control and went between two trees and we knew that we were going to see him hit the power lines and somehow or other came back around the other side of the field inside the power lines and and flew out of there that was absolutely insane um and it was just one of those things you know it could have happened to anybody but um you, you know the, you see the guy that blows one launch and he sets up and he's got plenty of room, but he doesn't go back to where he was. And he blows the second launch. Now he's at the middle of the field, which he would have never made the decision to start there. 
But since he blew two launches, it seems like a good idea as opposed to carrying all his gear back to the beginning of the field. And he'll take off from there. And, he, and I think that's what happened with this guy. He did not leave himself enough room. And that's why I like trikes at a flying because I can track myself all the way out to the other side of the field, set up, and no one sees me launch. Um, I can go and buzz around, do whatever I want to do. And uh, come back and, and land where nobody can see me, you know, take off or land or, or bust my butt, which is, you know, why go to a fly-in and try to do something or do something that you're not proficient in, and then you're that guy. You're that guy. Well, okay, so I took a, I took a, a P2 course. It's the only training I've paid for in this activity. And I don't feel like I got my money's worth, but I get I did all the stuff to get your P2 and I never mailed in the paperwork, but we did this out at, a, um, in Western Colorado on the Western slope. And it was pretty intimidating, you know, as a flatland guy to say, you're going to jump off of this without a motor. And the, the consensus of the class was, you know, if you got to the edge of the cliff, it, it wasn't like you were going to die. If you fell off the cliff, it wasn't a sheer cliff, but it was a 60 degree pitch. And you were going to, you were going to, fall about 10 feet and then you were going to roll all the way down to the bottom of that hill until it flattened out. And that, that was kind of the consensus that it would be worth it because you'd be that guy, you know, you'd have a great story to tell. Todd, I just knew for sure. Paramotor NC said that I had a similar uh, launch oh. and you had the benefit of, of watching it. <laughs> So you guys have all seen Will's video there where he makes the goalposts. That was pretty scary. But, I mean, Will, I, I didn't real, really ever feel like you were out of control there like the guy I saw at Bad Apples. Oh, no. No, but I said I, I couldn't tell you how I pulled that off. I mean, I still to this day, I don't. And it is still the scariest launch I've ever had. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, someone was watching out for me that day. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, I Ben's is a challenging place to fly, you know, and and I don't know how often Ben hosts people there, but um, uh, you know, you, you got to be on your A game there, or you got to have winds out of the east. That that makes it a lot easier at Ben's. If you're going up that hill towards the tall trees, and you got to get speed and altitude, and then maneuver, yeah, that's pretty tough. So oh, Ben's a nice guy and it's a beautiful property too. You know, you noticed I didn't try flying the samurai out of there. I was. <laughs> on that yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, Todd, where did you do fun. your training at? I didn't, I was self-trained. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. And then, um, you know, when you get, when you were talking about the, 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 the power to weight ratio now, is there something that is, in between there that you're like, Hey, this would work great if it was just lighter. And then if it would work, yeah. can you compensate that with a larger wing? Well, yeah, yeah. You, you know, and when the Adam 80 came out, a lot of guys were doing just that. They were saying, Hey, I like how quiet, I mean, I think Kyle O'Glee did, did a whole series on him flying that Adam 80 with a really big wing. Um, so, so let's, let's do some simple math here. The, the 185 works really good with all of the wings that I've flown and the smallest wing, because I'm a big dude. So the smallest wing that I've flown was Jeff, um, 
Dean loaned me his Hadron 3 23 meter at Wachula last year. And, you know, I wasn't in at my lightest weight since I started flying paramotors. And I, I ran 80 yards to get that thing airborne. So, and that was with the 185. So that I, I wouldn't go trying somebody's 21 meter free ride, maybe at the beach, but, but certainly not in a no wind launch situation. So let's, let's think about tandems now. You know, we're going to add that second guy, which is going to pretty much come close to, it's not going to fully double our weight because we're not changing, we're not adding a second engine. We're not adding a second fuel tank, but we're adding the lion's share of doubling our weight. So maybe a 40, 40% increase. It only makes sense to say if the 185 is making 25 horsepower, it's probably not a bad idea to reach out there to the 50 horsepower range there's really nothing in that category that's currently manufactured about the closest thing that you can come to is the, is the, uh, uh, the Rotax four, four, seven and five Oh three series engines. And the, the Rotax four, four, seven engine is basically the same engine they were putting in the Kawasaki jet skis of the eighties and the Kawasaki snowmobiles of the eighties. Those are Fuji heavy, heavy engine works designed that block. And that's, that's pretty much the standard air-cooled engine um, setup. And, um, you know, dual McCuny slide carburetors, side draft carburetors, they're hard to keep balanced. Um, that engine's really temperamental. It was prone to quitting. And their manual basically says, do not use this in a manner that you rely on the engine for your safety, you know. And they, the manual's pretty clear and spelling out that, it's an unreliable engine out of the box. You know, wow. So they knew it was unreliable from jump. Well, I, I think that they, you know, they had a really big ultralight flying and I, following, I should say. And I never, I never got involved in ultralights in the nineties. Um, I was too busy with my career. I couldn't afford it at that point in time. I had little kids and the airline demanded too much of my time for me to do any recreation aviation flying, you know, I was happy to get two or three days off in a row after being gone for four, four days with little kids in the house. That was a, that was a, a accomplishment in itself. And when I had vacation, you know, I better not be thinking about going to the airport. My wife would have pickled my gonads. Um, so, you know, until I got to the point where I wasn't as involved in my career, I didn't have time for recreational aviation. And by then the ultralight, thing it was starting to fizzle you know a lot of the ultralight clubs had had fatalities and it just wasn't as much fun as it was when guys started doing it and then rotax wanted to move on to something different uh, the, the hearth engines tried to try to capture some of that market but they weren't as effective and um there were still pockets of guys flying ultralights but not like the craze that was the early 90s with ultralights right and then now with you doing with you designing trikes, you know, and possibly manufacturing trikes, how do you know? And I, I you touched on it a little bit. How do you deal with the liability issues, Eric? I don't know. Um, I, I so here's the thing. Here's my take on liability. Um, in America, if you want to earn a lot of money, you assume risk. 
the, the days of getting rich by, by cutting down all the trees and being a lumber magnate or building railroads or mining, um, that's all locked up by big corporations. So, so how did I make a lot of money in my career? I managed and assumed risk for the airline as a captain at the airline. Um, you know, how do other people make money in our society? A lot of the, a lot of the big cash flow businesses have to do with risk management and risk mitigation. Um, and they'll, they'll do it for you. You know, you might have a problem on your property or you might need a roof replaced and they'll come do that work for you, but you're going to pay them for it. So I kind of view this in that same light, but the, the, the disincentive for me is I no longer need to go out there and swing a hammer, driving nails to make a living. So I, I have to find a way to isolate my personal assets from legal attack or, or it simply won't happen. Uh, I think the, the better thing for me is to, to build a design and sell it to somebody and have them produce it as their product. I was just going to say that that would probably be the safest, you know, yeah, because uh, what is it? Uh, there's a few paramotor companies out there now that are U.S. based. You know, I wonder how they're getting away with it. Of course, I'm sure they're incorporated and they have their, you know, their own. Um... Well, I'll tell you one one thing I have considered is uh, I, I have a younger son who's a very proficient welder. He's a professional welder. Um, I could set this up as his business. And, you know, he doesn't have the passion for paramotoring that I know of. Um, we've messed around with kiting a little bit, but he doesn't live by me. Um, and, and I've thought, you know, this would be a way for someone with um, young person's asset level that's really not going to be exposed to much in the way of litigation. Because the first thing these lawyers do when they, they sniff around to see if you're likely to be a good candidate for me to sue you is what, you know, how deep are your pockets? And if you don't have any assets or money, you know, they're going to tell their client, well, you know, we might win this, but there's nothing to recover. So can't squeeze blood from a turnip. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, that, that might be the, the, the perfect type of a sideline business for a young guy with, without a lot of exposure, but you know, this product liability thing doesn't go away as you age, you know, um, a Piper right. aircraft learned that the hard way, you know, they had people modifying airplanes that were built in the forties and crashing them in the 1980s and suing Piper, you know, and the airplanes were manufactured in the thirties and forties and they, they would have done anything. They would have bought those airplanes back and, and sent them to the scrapyard or, or shredder to prevent the exposure to the liability that pretty much drug aviation down the toilet you know, it wasn't until George Bush signed the Aviation Revitalization Act in the mid '80s there, uh, or in the in the late '80s there, that there there was a period of time for five or six years where not one single airplane was built in the United States because of their fear of product liability concerns. You think that's why so many of these products are built overseas? I know that's why you, you can't you can't solve the litigation over the ocean to go after a company that built something in France. It's, it's just not going to happen. The courts aren't going to support it. Right. And they're certainly not going to support it to the level that they did in the United States. Right. Yeah. yeah it's an unfortunate reality and, and it needs to be solved. Uh, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to do anything like this, you know, 
Now, now the way that Phillips chosen to do it is he, he flat out sold a couple of his designs, um, a couple of things I helped him work on to, to Mark George there at the Paris WAG. And, and uh, you know, I, who knows if, if, if someone, so Philip built a, uh, a strobe, it runs on a, a cell phone battery. It, he designed the circuitry, proprietary design of circuitry, ordered a bunch of circuit boards, soldered up a bunch of them, gave them to all of us as friends. But let's, let's just say hypothetically that one of those things caught on fire and burned through somebody's riser and caused them to fall from 5,000 feet. And they could prove that that's what happened. Or maybe they don't even have to prove. They just make the accusation that that's what happened. And the guy was a high wage earner. Let's say he was a doctor or a dentist and he really enjoyed paramotoring and he left a widowed wife and a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old who still needed to go to college and he left them with no income. Well, I don't know how you defend against that. And I don't know where the, assuming both parties had assets to go after both you know, in, in that hypothetical case of my buddy Philip and then Mark, I, I don't know who I don't know who would be insulated given that the design of that product was sold off. Um, that would be one for the courts. And you know, there might be some legal precedent out there that would help you figure that out. But I, I don't, you know, that's beyond my my right. desire to even care. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, product liability is is a concern, but uh, I don't think it's as big a concern. And you know, the guy that I talked about here in Florida that had the the fatality in one of the one of the contraptions that he had built, um, he dodged a bullet, but you know, it might not have gone anywhere. I mean, this guy was welding these things up in his garage in Michigan, and you know, what are, what are they going to recover from from a guy like that? You know a hundred thousand dollars worth of machine tools and inventory and, and then a lean against his income in the future. Right. Um, you know, the, the lawyers are looking for, for people with more money than that. Right. So interesting. <clears throat> we have crested over nine o'clock PM and uh, we've been talking for more than two hours. That's insane. That. Yeah, That's I know. Insane. It just, Boom, just like that. If you guys were looking in the super chat of the first five people and somebody already uh, texted me, um, the first five people that text me their name and their uh, address, I will send them out some Paraswag USA stickers and some clear prop TV stickers. And if you want some uh, some merch from us, I already sent you out some stickers and stuff also. So, Deweese, um, you already got your stickers. I, I think I put stickers in there. Deweese, I put stickers in there. If I didn't, I'm so sorry. Um, but anyway, um, any other questions in the chat? Any other questions for our panel? I just want to say this was a great show. Um, you know, Todd, I don't think I've ever met you, but uh, no, we we met at, we met at Mountain City. Okay, all yep. right. We met at, um, I, I met both you and Jade at Mountain City. Yep. Okay, I want to go back and watch the video of you building the trike. Yeah, um, take a look at it. that because that's it is really intriguing. The only input that I have to say is make accessories. 
Nobody makes accessories for trikes. Do you know how hard it is to find skis? We all might not have that problem. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Actually, there is a guy, there is a guy in Florida, his name's Marty. He makes the, the, the carbon fiber fenders. He does phenomenal work. He does phenomenal work. Yeah. Yeah, we have uh, a few of his fenders, and he made Jade a custom fender that he painted, uh, and it looks like a flamingo. For oh, her. cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. So, um, no, but I really enjoyed this show, and you're a plethora of knowledge. Um, uh, you know, and it's it's very well, interesting I, to hear. I like to say that I had a lot of experiences. So, you know, my, right. my career my career put me in a position where I got to experience a lot of things. So, right. And I bet I wish you the best on your uh, your trike. I really would like to see that. Well, trike, trike number two is almost finished. You know, these are the finishing parts for it. I got to buy wheels for it. And trike number two is ready to go. I'd like to have it powder coated. It's a good looking machine. Yeah. Um, but I, where I really want to exercise my, um, I, I really want to reach out with, with a trike build where the motor stays on the trike. It's not a backpack launch unit. Yeah. And I, I want to build that monstrosity that can, they can climb, you know, you guys have seen the, the Tucker got video where he talks about the most badass trike. Um, and it's that, that RMZ 500 powered. Uh, I th think it's, uh, is that a Zenit? I'm not, I'm not sure what the brand of that trike is, but it's, it's an awesome amount of power for the weight of it. And it goes straight up pretty much. Yep. Yeah. yeah so that's, what's coming in the future, but keep an eye on Peter. P Peter's a sharp dude, and he's going to solve this electric paramotor thing. Yep. Good deal. Probably. Um, also, too, somebody um, uh, 3D printed a motor, and he tested the uh, the 3D printed motor not not too long ago. Oh, did you see, did that. you, did you see that, uh, Eric? That 3D printed? Not. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I love this oh, 3D printing stuff. Was that... Uh... Yeah, did I send you that link? Um, we we talked about the link. I don't know who sent okay. what, okay. but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you sent it to me originally. Then I went and looked, and then I think I sent you the actual video that yeah. they went in and flew it. Yeah. So, so now you can three D print electric motors. That's who would have thunk it? Uh, I'll tell you what, man. If you guys don't own a three D printer and you like this kind of stuff, for two hundred dollars, go buy a three D printer and learn how to use Fusion 360 to program, to build, you might make something simple. I'll, I'll, the, the first thing that I made on my 3D printer, we got a swimming pool and it's got gates and there's a little cap on top of the release lever to get the gate open. And that cap had been sun damaged and broke a long time ago. I, I spec'd it out and mic'd it. I designed the part, I printed it out. It was so satisfying. Uh, and that was my first 3D print. Yeah, you, you got one in the background there. So yeah, are you... I, I got the Snapmaker, the three-in-one. I got the biggest one. Um, I've been making, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, um, chase cams and, of course, the Millennial Falcon is something. Awesome. And, and a digital sundial, which actually oh, works. Oh, I did see that. That's right. Yeah. yeah that was, okay, that but was... wait a minute now. That's all stuff you downloaded the From Thingsverse, and now I want to start creating. Now that I understand this, it also has a CNC and a laser engraver, so I can't wait to play with that stuff, all too. All right, so start learning Fusion 360. I saw the prices. It's kind of on the heavy side. 
No, it's not. They have a hobbyist version that's free. What, what, okay, okay. Um, I did not see that one. Yeah. I saw the I saw the fifteen hundred dollars for th four years or three years, whatever it was. Well, that, that's okay. So the limitations on the hobbyist side, there's some things you can't do. You you can't draw blueprints directly from Fusion. You can't print blueprints directly from Fusion, and there's some limitations to the number of files you can save and keep open and collaborate on but it's fully functional. It supports all, uh, every single function in Fusion 360. So there's, a, there's an educational license and there's a hobbyist license. And you got to figure it out. And I, don't, I have to renew it every year to keep mine active or I lose all my files. But go okay. download it. I just and, found it, the hobbyist user. I did not know that existed. Thank you so much for start, saying that. Absolutely. So start, start there. And then I highly suggest watching the tutorials of a guy named... Lars Christensen. He's Dutch. He lives in the United States. He's an educator for AutoCAD and he teaches zero to hero courses on Fusion 360 competence. You can watch thousands of hours of instructional video on Fusion 360. And I, I just committed to it. I wanted to do it so badly. I said, Every day for three months, I'm going to spend an hour in the morning when I'm having coffee, watching and watching and acting along with my version of Fusion 360 running, an hour, an hour a day. And in three months, in in one day, you could do drawings. <laughs> in three months, you had a basic proficiency to be able to design components and parts and output them to print them out on your 3D printer. No way! That wow. Yeah. Lars Christensen, Fusion 360 Tutorials. Okay, I'm writing all this stuff down. Uh, Bill H. said it's one of the best shows, and Resurgence PPG said that Todd's all right. We should keep him around, and I concur 100%. Man. Thanks for coming on. I mean, I hey, man, thanks for having me. Long. It's been a good evening, so I got yeah, to talk I about some of my favorite uh, stuff with some of my favorite people. Uh, Thanks, Todd, for letting me kidnap you to the show. You bet, Lynn. <laughs> Thanks for asking me. <laughs> You're welcome back anytime. All you right. Knowledge. I totally appreciate you. Thank you so much. Well, cool. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, That's just awesome. yeah. I, I got I got yeah. a ton of stuff that I wrote down, and I'll go back and listen to this again. And yep. uh, for for those of you that do not know, you can always go to paratalk.org to listen to all of our shows audio wise you can always go back and watch these shows again and uh, you can even go over to to audible and to amazon music search for ppg grandpa's paramotor podcast and here we are our third season this is episode 108 with todd and man i appreciate you coming out and, and hanging with us for over two hours who does that oh we are like all over the place now we're all over the place so people say, where can I find you? And I just say, all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> all over the place. Yeah, I think that we're on all the uh, all the platforms now. So yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, totally I only got one person that texted me for for um, for stickers. So if you want to, I left my phone number in the chat. That's my actual phone number. So you can keep me in there. So if you ever want to text me and talk about paramotors, guess what? Not only is it Monday that I like to talk about paramotors, but I talk about paramotors from sunup to sundown. My poor wife. Oh, my God. 
Uh, she loves me a wee bit. I love yeah. her too. Um, any other questions that we missed in the chat or on the panel before we head on out tonight? I think we got them. Yeah, I do too. I think we did. Well, thank, thank you, you everybody, everybody that's listening to us live, that's listening yeah. to us on Memorex yeah. right now, that uh, decided to listen to, to our show on one of the podcasting apps. We definitely appreciate you. Um, real quick, let's go ahead and sign off. Let's go ahead and go through our panel member or our panel real quick, and then we'll end up with Todd. So Linda Anderson, she's our ParamomUSA.com. If you want to be on the show, make sure you go over to ParamomUSA.com. And of course, that goes to her Facebook page. She is Linda Anderson, the Linda Anderson. There, yeah, there might be other ones out there, but she is the Linda Anderson. I am the, that's all right. And, right. she has, and you also have a very famous son that does something on Thursday nights. Yes, I'm the paramom. And um, on Thursday nights, we have paraglidingchalk.com. Dot com. The awesomest, <laughs> awesomest host, Robert Michael. And uh, he will be back in town. He's, he's back already, but he will be there on Thursday night. It's Thursday, so y'all, I'll keep you posted on that. And uh, you know, talk about all the shenanigans at Salt and Sea and everything. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I was so wish that I was able to make it to Salt and Sea. I guess we'll have to do it some other year. But hey, oh, it's always going to be there. I'm sure. There you go. Love you bunches, you guys. Well, Linda, thank you so much for helping us out, and we definitely appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Love you with all my heart and soul. Did I do that right? Is that is that the right? I don't know. I'm too old for that. But thank you, Leonard. We appreciate you. We also got Will Fly from WillFlyPPG.com. Makes amazing videos. If you haven't been over to his channel yet, just go to WillFlyPPG.com. Subscribe. Hit that bell notification. His videos are amazing. I mean, thousands and thousands of hits each video. I mean, done amazingly. Uh, Will Fly, tell us a little bit about your shenanigans and, uh, you know, I mean, you're amazing. Uh, it's a, yeah, if you like corny humor and you like flying paramotors, <laughs> check it out. We'll fly ppg.com. All right. Well, thank you so much. We definitely appreciate you being on, on here, Will. Uh, we also got um, PPG Lear, L E A R.com. He does a paragliding talk, paramotor talk, paramotor podcast, a hangout on Tuesday nights along with uh, Shane. Tell us a little bit about that, Eric. Yeah, so it's the uh, Tuesday night hangout, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about the fly-ins that are coming up and, uh, you know, where they're going to be at and what's going on. Um, and then uh, you can get to that by going to ppglear.com. And then Wednesday night we have uh, Flying Flamingo Jade, and she does a show that is all females that are, you know, in aviation. Um and I don't quite remember who she has on tonight, but she is really killing it with her guests, all the way from astronauts to skydivers to PPG pilots to major airline captains. I mean, she's done a very good job. Um, so it makes my show look not very good. But anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, you can find her at paramotorgirl.com on Wednesdays at 7 Central. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric. We definitely appreciate you, uh, your wife, Jade. Um, yeah, that astronaut thing just blew me out into outer space. That was awesome. I loved it. 
so thank you very much, Eric. I, I appreciate you. And of course, Todd Felstead, uh, amazing guy, amazing guest. Uh, we appreciate you being on here for almost two and a half hours. I know that you had so many other things that you could have done other than hung, hang out with us, but you hung out with us and we definitely appreciate you, Todd. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And of course, you know, you're on our, our chat now, our private chat. So you can come on anytime you want to every Monday night. Come on, be part of the panel. We, we love you yeah. to, to do that. That'd be great. Yep, exactly. So thank you so much, Todd. We definitely appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, lots of. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that, but that, that's awesome. Um, so far, we had two people that texted me for stickers. So keep on texting me. Uh, I think as long as you text me your, your name and uh, address, I will send them out. So uh, go ahead and do that. But thank you guys very much. We appreciate you. This thank is PPG Grandpa's Pure Motor Podcast, clearproptv.com, paratalk.org. Find us anywhere out there that streams uh, a podcast, all of your podcasting apps that you love. Just search for PPG Grandpa's Pure Motor Podcast. And we're out there. Oh, my God. We're out there and we're everywhere. Um, oh, let me let me go over to the chat real quick and say hello to everybody that that's still um, there. Paramotor Girls there. Uh, Brian Waller. Um, Will Fly, Walter from Australia, uh, Mickey Alberto, uh, Eric Lear, Kevin Bush, uh, the the guy SC93. Um, let's see. I know there's more up there. I'm, I'm still going up. But of course, uh, Todd with Resurgence PPG. If you haven't been over to Resurgence PPG, definitely go there. He helps out a lot of people in the uh, paramotor community. We love you very much. Um, yeah. Bill H., um, Nick Griffith. Hey, Nick, I sent you your stuff out. You should have got it already. If you haven't, give me a call. Uh, you won that T-shirt. Um, James Robbins, um, Mac Fly Guy. I know there's a bunch more. I saw you. I'm just scrolling up. Dweez Milstead, um, Paramotor NC. I think I got everybody here. The Van Vandler. What what is that one? The Van Lander. I, well, hello, Vanlander. All right, right. Uh, Paramotor Steve, uh, John Wayne. Thank you guys so so much. We appreciate you guys. Um, every Monday night, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to go over to Eric's channel at uh, uh, ppglear.com, L-E-A-R, on Tuesdays, and also ppgshane.com. Uh, on Wednesday, we have paramotorgirl.com, and of course, on Thursday, we got that very famous guy. What is it again, Linda? Paraglidingtalk.com. Dot com. I'll be there. Be there or be square. That's right. All right, y'all have a great evening and thank you so much. Uh, you guys, if you want to wait around a second, um, we'll we'll talk for five minutes before um, uh, okay. after we we say goodbye to everybody. Bye bye.